Hi everyone, we're on episode five of season six of the Practical Protection Podcast and we have Ruth Gilbert with us and she is um, going to be talking to us about trusts. She's from Insuring Change and has an incredible amount of knowledge in this area. Hi Ruth. Hi. Hi Roy. Hi. Today we're going to be talking, I say through trusts, um, why we need to get them in place, why it's even more important from an advisor point of view, especially as consumer duty is kicking in, that we need to be on top of these things. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So, Ruth, how are you doing? I, I believe you've had sort of like a little bit of an activity just before we've started the podcast, um, in, including sort of like a little feline friend. Is that right? I'm glad to report that all is under control now and the cat has left the interview room. Okay. <laughs> That's always a good thing. I have to say, Fudge is right next to me, my little dog Fudge, and um, and hopefully he's going to be quiet. He did just have a little bit of a barking fit, didn't we, <laughs> before we started uh, recording, but uh, he's all good. And and how are you doing, Roy? It's nice to have you back. Yeah, very good, thank you. Yes, I think one of these weeks we should uh, interview Fudge, actually, the, the things that Fudge could talk oh, to us about. Absolutely. It'll just be, it would definitely have to be a video podcast then, wasn't it? Just like the many faces of Fudge. And, uh, <laughs> Yes, he's um, just looking at him now. He's got into a thing as well of really pawing at me, like putting his paw on me to get attention. And uh, interesting when I did Pilates yesterday, because he, first of all, when I was face downwards, he just walked the back of my head. And then when I was faced upwards, he then decided to, to get me on my forehead. So that was quite fun. Um, but uh, he's, uh, he's, he's quite adorable, so I'll let him get away with it. So let's get um, straight into things then. So I think it's always a good idea from the start, Ruth, if we get a bit of a, a bit of a background um, about yourself, sort of like just give everyone, all the listeners, who's who are you, Ruth? What are you doing? What's got you into the trust side of things? Well, I've been working in life insurance all my adult life um, after having done a law degree. And that's what took me very quickly into being the one that was lumbered with having to think about trusts back in the early days, um, at which point I thought they were a thing of loveliness. It was great to be as a person that had the answers when uh, advisors came on the line um, and the one who was tasked with coming up with what now I look back and see uh, were um, a set of paperwork uh, making the stuff of nightmares for for people who just want to do a simple thing. Um, but over my time, I worked mostly within uh, insurance, most latterly quite a long time ago now, uh, at Scottish Widows uh, in the heady days of bank assurance, where already it was becoming obvious that something a bit simpler <laughs> maybe would be a good idea. Uh, and then since then, I've done various things self-employed and circled right back to tackling uh, what I now consider to be the nettle that is trusts and what could we do instead. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just what you're saying there about how people are just wanting to do something simply. I know just before we started recording, I was sharing with you both that um, I'd done some gifting to VBOS planning recently and I'd done it across three insurers. And every one of them, I'd had to use a different type of trust. And I had to use one. Um, so obviously we'll go into technicalities a bit. I'm going to try and avoid the jargon. But, you know, one of them I'd had to use like an absolute trust. And I, I do try and avoid them because they're so inflexible. Um, and but I'd had to choose that to make sure that the partner wasn't in any way, shape or form going to end up being a potential beneficiary. So it definitely went to the children. Um, who'd received the gift and um, then the other two um, I'd had to choose completely different ones again because with one of them we had to specifically choose one so we could initial that the, the terminal illness would definitely be gifted away and not retained and then the other one was a different version as well and I have to say it was not a simple process at all and you just felt like can somebody just do a trust that's just that really clear and like, especially for something like that, you know, the gift into Vivos side of things, when we're planning something like that, you just think, can we just have like a gift into Vivos trust that, that kind of satisfies all of that straight away? So we don't need to be thinking about, well, hang on a minute, are we gifting the terminal illness? Because yes, because if not, we're adding to the estate and the whole purpose of this is to make sure it is 
sent to the um the people getting the gift and, and other things like that um so yeah I'm, I'm think myself and many many others are very very grateful that uh that you're here trying to simplify it for us all morning Ruth how, how are we doing um I I think uh, I'm going to pay you a huge compliment here I think most people in our industry uh uh, refer to you as uh, mistrust or Mrs. Trust, whatever the uh, most appropriate thing is. So, so uh, f firstly, thanks for all the the hard work and um, you, you've done there. But I guess I want to go back a little bit here. Um, you know, those of us that have been around long enough were, were probably trained on trust a, a very long time ago. But to a lot of advisors, um, uh, it is a bit of a minefield. And I think you've just mentioned the fact that obviously you're a lawyer and you know, lawyers that will come across will specialise in trust law. And maybe, maybe there's a, a small fear of our industry about the very word. But um, could you just sort of give us a very basic guide and as, as Catherine uh, plead, uh, as jargon free as you can, as to the different types of trusts? Because we have very strange words. We talk about Fair trust and absolute trust and some of the terminology and split trust uh, could be potentially confusing. Could, could, could you start us off with a, a sort of very basic uh, dummy's guide to trust, if, if, if you might? Well, um, that's quite a challenge, um, not least because um, some of the terminology means the same thing. Uh, some of the terminology refers to a combination of things. Uh, so in your examples there, um, you mentioned absolute and bare trust, which I would think of as the same, which is basically you've said who's to get the money and that's the end of the story. No fucking about, no changes later. It's not flexible. Um, and then we talk about discretionary trusts and flexible trusts. Um, sometimes that terminology gets mixed up, but mostly um, a discretionary trust means no beneficiary has been picked so far and the trustees need to make a choice out of the list of beneficiaries as to who's going to get the money. Um, they could choose their minds again later, um, but hence it's called discretionary because it's at their discretion. And flexible is very similar in that there's um, room for change there as to who gets the money. Um, but usually with a flexible trust, there already will be from day one um, a default beneficiary picked. And I'm a big fan of that um, to set off on the right foot to say, hang on, <laughs> what was the whole point of this cover? Who is it for? Is it so hard to say right now? <laughs> it's for the missus. <laughs> Um, and then you can always unpick it later if necessary. Um, but it saves a whole lot of headache at claim because you don't then have to go through hoops for the trustees to go through a process, um, which sometimes requires deeds uh, to pick a beneficiary. Uh, and you're only allowed to do that if there's two of you. Well, there might only be one because you only appointed the missus and now she's a widow and just wants her money. And she's been told, no, um, you've got to have another trustee to pick yourself. <laughs> oh, now, you've used, you, independent as well. <laughs> you've used the word trustee several times already. Just for our listeners, could you just in, in basic terms spell out what a trustee is and, and why you have to have a trustee? Yes. So it's a funny old thing where until relatively recently, um, just saying who the beneficiary would be couldn't be enforced uh, against insurers. So you have this um, sort of legal basket to put the policy into um, where you've got somebody who has also got legal rights over the policy, that is a trustee. So the policyholder already has rights to enforce the contract. They obviously are a trustee. Uh, but when they're dead, that's useless. So you've got to pick somebody else who also owns the policy legally and can enforce the rights in that contract against the insurer. Uh, and so they are the person in charge of making sure the money is obtained from the insurer and then passing it out to the beneficiary. But the reality is, uh, for a lot of people, that just needs to be the same person. It's uh, who wants to get the money. It's the missus. 
So why shouldn't she be both beneficiary and trustee? Uh, and she can just ask the insurer for her money. But in more complex scenarios and uh, when we're talking about inheritance tax planning and it does get more complicated, um, it, there can be good reasons why you would pick somebody else um, who is uh, independent uh, and can help make changes. You need somebody independent because obviously there could be conflict of interests um, if you were the sole trustee and you swap who was going to benefit to yourself and uh, swan off to the Caribbean. Um, but yeah, trustee is the person in charge of getting the money, basically. So as the name suggests, it needs to be someone you really do trust with your life. Exactly. And therein lies a whole list of headaches for some people as well, thinking, well, who would I pick? Yeah, I, I, it's always it's a tricky one. And it's, it's one of those things, because I know some advisors don't particularly like to advise on trusts, actually, because they can feel a bit nervous about it. And I think, you know, going back to some of your examples there, you know, if it is a case of you've got a couple, you know, it could be that they are each other's trustees. If it's like assuming that's say it's single policies, so they may be each other's trustees on each other's policy. It might be as well, though, that um, they choose siblings possibly to be trustees as well to help. So one of the things I always say to people is, you know, I can't tell people who they would have as trustees, but basically it needs to be somebody that you trust to the nth degree and I also say because basically they own it as well so you don't want to get to a situation where there's a claim and they turn around and say well actually on their deathbed they said they wanted me to have it all um and it's just not you know I try and use that as an example to people because as good as anything like this as we know even as for advisors it can be very jargon for this stuff and we need to make sure that people really understand that difference um and another thing that I do sometimes, because, you know, often a lot of the time there can be children involved. So what I'll say to people is, look, you know, who's going to be looking after your children? If it's somebody that you trust enough to, to raise your children and look after your children, then they can potentially be somebody to, to use. Um, and I think it's probably really important here as well. I, I imagine that we probably all agree to say that, and I always say somebody independent, we would probably also agree that as an advisor, we would not put ourselves as a trustee on a policy. Not. Exactly. So I think that's just really important to put that out there, especially for people who are very new to the industry. As an advisor, you do not do not put yourself in that position. And obviously, certainly as well, unless it happens to be your, your immediate partner or something, you would not go down as a beneficiary on a policy either. Yes. And yeah, I, I just to sort of um, take that point a bit further to say two two big reasons why not. First of all, this is something that's got to stay in place for who knows, 20, 25 years. And what are the chances that you'll still be around in the same role yeah. that you're doing now? Catherine's um, never going to retire, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just me still on my deathbed. I'm starting these trusts. However, she, she may have several successful businesses. <laughs> And, and there's a, and there's a, there's a conflict. There's a conflict there, clearly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But also, um, just think of the responsibility as well, because if you put yourself forward as a trustee, you as the advisor, that that gives a sort of implication that actually you are a professional trustee, and you pr probably flipping aren't. <laughs> Um, in that you do not want to be in that sort of more um, professional looking role um, where if you're a lay person, you're just the brother. You can be excused for not spotting that, oh, I didn't do things quite according to the book um, as to what trustee responsibilities might be. Um, but if you put yourself forward as a, an advisor and say, look, I'll be the other trustee. Um, there's a lot, a higher standard of uh, knowledge and responsibility that can be expected from you, which I would imagine most financial advisors would really not want to get into. In fact, I flip this totally on its head. Um, and what I'd say to people is, look, not only should I not be a trustee, um, but that I, I have a conflict there. But having said that, what I would do is once you've decided who the trustees are, you should certainly tell them who I am. Because yes. the other thing about a policy is, when people pass away in particular is that the trustees will need uh, some help. Uh, and as Catherine and I both know, the role of uh, an advisor is, is extremely important 
once a claim is 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 made. So I think that's that's important that the trustees know who we are. Um, the the other line I would throw in for our listeners is. Um, there are a lot of people, and Catherine, I'm sure you've been here, where you say to people, in the event of your death, who's going to look after your your kids? And particularly if you're both not around, if you if you if you if the two parents, and they say, oh, my guardians are, you know, my sister or my brother, and then uh, you know, invariably they'll say, do you know what? They're, they're fantastic with kids, but they're useless with money. Uh, and what <laughs> I tend to say there is, that's exactly why I would have a separate trustee who quite often is not the same person as the guardian because I think there are two things here one not everyone's good with money but two to have someone else to give some perspective okay is really important and I think it's very important that people talk to their guardians and trustees about how they would want the kids uh you know brought up in particular and sometimes having the, the two different people the guardian being separate to the trustee I think it's actually quite powerful the example that's given most to me is um you know people's attitude to private education so you know do, do you know your brother and sister's uh, you know attitude to private education and has it changed since they've had kids you know I've sat in many a trustee meeting where People have said, yeah, well, of course, I'd want to send, you know, Johnny and Johnny and Jane to private school. And a brother or sister says, oh, you, you've changed the tune. You? That's, that's not the way we were brought up. But I think it's really important that people know the wishes of, of, of how you want your children brought up, in particular in, in the event of death. And that's why sometimes having a separate trustee to guard in is probably quite, quite uh, sensible. Very good point. And also, um, if it's if it's cover that is actually taken out with the primary thought of um, who's going to look after my kids. So for single parents, this would be particularly relevant to think. Um, so is the is the cover really to provide for my children's financial future when they actually reach adulthood? Or is it really compensation, uh, as it were? Is it funding to help my guardian actually afford what is going to be quite a costly exercise in bringing up my children? And that's two very different needs. Yeah, no, it's a really, really good point. I mean, every time I talk to people about trust, uh, you know, to the layman, and we're laymen, of course, as well, uh, the flexibility and the discretionary part of trust, I think, appeal more to to advisors because we perceive that our lives are going to change, and therefore our our need for flexibility is going to be more profound. Do you think that counts against you know your bare and absolute trusts? Uh, well, yes, in a good sense. In that, um, my thought would be it would be quite rare where I would think, oh, great, yeah, let's go for just an absolute or bare trust, um, because you don't know what the future will bring and, and what might seem right um, when you set it up. Um, life can take over and that person you chose as the beneficiary uh, might not even survive you. Uh, so then what? Did you actually want it to go through their estate, which well, it might, might boomerang back to you? Um, in which case... I suppose that that can you can um, unpick that, but um, the fact is that uh, there are other reasons you might want to change your mind. That that person may no longer need that benefit, and you may have some have somebody else who needs the benefit much more that you would want to change uh, the benefits too. I think something that I just popping into my mind as well when I'm saying that about things changing. So I did um, a podcast recently with somebody and it was all about divorce. And I was sort of stepping in there and saying, like, you know, if people divorce, this is what you need to be looking at for in terms of protection and that. And one of the things that came up, I said, was about making sure you know what's going on with the trusts. And I think one of the things that can be really difficult is we do know that now that we are in a position with some insurers where we can potentially change like beneficiaries relatively easily not not many but you know we can potentially change the beneficiaries um but do you think that there's like there should be in some ways a greater greater ability to potentially change trustees at times as well because especially in that kind of area where we are starting to look more in areas and, and i know this is a massive side tangent i'm not suggesting at all that you're an expert in financial abuse or anything like that but you know, there are times where people need to be able to change that trustee for very, very specific reasons. That trustee is not going to give permission if they, if it is something where they have to give permission to, to do that. And sometimes, you know, in the past, the only option was to, in a sense, just cancel the original policy and just start a brand new one with a completely new trust. I mean, what are your thoughts in terms on the on that kind of thing, on the trustee side? 
that's always been something that has troubled me. And um, what I have noticed over time is that some insurers have managed to address that in their trusts. Um, others, I'm not so sure. So back in the olden days, um, we used to get tied up in the thought that mm, um, it seems that you would have to have the exiting trustee um, collaborate and cooperate mm. within the deed um, of retirement um, so that the ownership of the policy within that deed could be assigned back to just the uh, policyholder along with potentially at the same time the new trustee even more complicated in real life <laughs> you can imagine um, so um, that's a really bad place to be in for some people uh, I do see that some trusts now give the power to the settlor, the policyholder, to basically dismiss the trustee and pick a new one. Yeah. And on you go. Um, there are some technicalities around that, but... Um, and some, sometimes you need that there. person's signature, which is quite interesting, isn't it? So the person you're retiring, you need to get them to sign. And that can, yeah. I, in my experience, that yeah. can be very awkward. So that was the, the, the olden days scenario that um, uh, I, I'm really keen to see avoided. Um, yeah. And so, some some uh, trusts will allow that. Uh, whether they require you to inform that, dis that, that dismissed trustee or not, um, I'm unsure about that. In practice, I, I can imagine that, well, even if required, it's something that might... Um, be skipped and won't matter mm. um, but yes it's it's an awkwardness of the uh, the situation of needing a, a trustee who you potentially could fall out with compared to contractual beneficiary nomination where you can change to somebody else who becomes appropriate when you've had a split and you don't have to have the consent or involvement of the previous person who was the beneficiary um, another scenario where it's just simpler to um, not be tied up in a trust at all. Because that always reminds me of, you know, that it feels like a film, doesn't it? But it's real life as well, where people say, right, I'm going off to change my will. And you hear, you hear these stories a lot. Well, actually, the concept of changing the will is exactly the same as often as changing your, your, your uh, beneficiaries and your trust. Uh, yes. So people change their wills relatively easy, um, but we don't make it easy to change the trust, do we? Well, exactly. As I say, unless it's one of the um, the more modern trusts that has allowed that power, um, in which case, hooray. Absolutely. I was going to say, I'm also as well talking about modernness. I'm a huge, huge lover of online trusts that don't need about signatures. Um, so any insurers that are listening, you know, that is really, really key, because as I'm sure all of us know from an advice side of things, we can talk about the benefits of trusts forever and you know i mean a key thing for me and what i find is that um i think there's quite a, a change as well so if you if you have clients who are typically what we consider more like high net worth then doing things like trust just seems like an absolute no-brainer because they know about it in terms of the inheritance tax body but Absolutely. lots of people that i speak to are nowhere near iht levels so when you say to them because there's always that thing like when you first start off you know in a sense in terms of advising so well, why do you trust oh well it protects it against iht and that just doesn't translate to the majority of people because they're just like well that's not me i mean I have to say the way that ignoring recent things in the UK, the way that house prices are going up, I think a lot of people are possibly start hitting towards IHT levels without even knowing about it until something happens and uh, and the houses are sold. Um, but what I tend to do, and just maybe this could help other advisors, is I just say to them, I was like, right, I start off by going, this means if we put it in trust, it means your family is going to get it far quicker, probably pay out far quicker than if we don't, because if we need to wait for probate. That's going to take months in all likelihood. But if we do it this way, it can be paid really fast, you know, potentially, you know, within a week or so. And it means it's going to go to the people that you definitely want it to. Well, no, can't say definitely because you never know. The trustees could have a moment. So let's just be prepared that they might do that. Um, 
And I think, you know, maybe some advisors, maybe that'll help, you know, them to just sort of say to them, like, you know, don't go just running in straight away with the inheritance tax side of things. Go back to the real thing of, you know, as with anything, we're doing this for the benefit of someone. How we're benefiting them, it's going to be quicker. It's going to be, should be simpler than having to wait for the the, the probate and everything. Um, I'm going to go for a little Can, I, can I yeah. jump in on that? Yeah. Um, you've really jumped onto one of my key soapboxes there, and I would put it stronger yeah. than you just <laughs> put it. So... Uh, in fact, I've just been writing up a report um, to the effect that uh, in this paragraph where I was addressing where are the priorities with trying to get uh, customers engaged with why they should do a trust, we shouldn't even mention inheritance tax unless the whole point of the cover was to actually pay an inheritance tax bill. So that's a completely different scenario, completely appropriate. Um, but that is absolutely the minority of cases, unless you happen to do nothing but high net worth um, advice. Uh, lucky you. Um, but for particularly, the particularly, particularly, Ruth, as, as mortgages are debts, which, of course, come off your estate for IHT purposes anyway. And I think a lot of people forget that quite basic fact that, that, that debt comes off your estate. Yes. So here's the thing. Um, the amount of deaths that actually cause an inheritance tax liability, um, for all that we talk a lot about it, uh, it's been well under 5% of deaths that have any inheritance tax liability associated. And what's more, within those taxpaying estates, not all of them even have life policies anyway. So for people taking out life cover, where it, there's good, you know, they've been hit with an inheritance tax liability. Well, it's a very, very small minority. Mm. And the whole point about putting your policy in trust, yes, of course, as a hygiene factor, um, you need it to not potentially bump you up into a, a, an IHT situation. Um, but as Catherine said, for, for, for everybody across the board, the most important thing really is that you don't get tangled up for months on end, not being able to get hold of the money. But even more important than that, I would now say, and I didn't realise this for a good number of years until um, possibly just four years ago, uh, even that is not the biggest priority, um, given that some people actually risk not getting the money at all. So now I'm talking about the one in three um, couples taking out life cover who are not married. Mm -hmm. So that is a bunch that typically don't have wills either because on average they're under age 45 and they risk not getting the money at all. So that is a complete disaster. Uh, so I would say that is the first thing to absolutely concentrate both advisor and customer minds on is to make sure that the money goes to the person we've just discussed, the whole, the whole point of the cover is for, you need to, you have to <laughs> fill out this form and make sure they get it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to say, I mean, I won't share full details on here now, but um, it could be somebody that we maybe ask on the future to come onto the onto the podcast to share their experience. But there is somebody very much in our industry who speaks quite openly about how she faced that exact situation where, you know, they were cohabiting and unfortunately the partner had died and the the money that was intended for her went to the family and didn't come to her and uh, and very, very so many emotional implications of that as well as financial obviously but you know a huge a huge amount of the things that were going on there we need uh we need uh you know case studies actually uh you know comes full circle to those real life stories about when trusts have worked and and to Ruth's point when they haven't worked um uh, which brings us on to our little favorite subject of joint life policies um um could, could you tell the sarcasm in my voice as i said joint life um Ruth, we're not big fans of joint life policies for, for, for reasons we've talked about on other, on other podcasts, but they're still out there. So um, what's your views on joint life policies and trusts? So the one good thing about joint life policies in my head 
is not that it's a bit cheaper um because that's still not good value because you don't get the two um, pots of cover um but the one good thing is that at least from day one you're guaranteed the person the cover's meant for will get it mm. <laughs> um so the idea then that we need to fuss about putting those in trusts is quite low down on my agenda uh, in terms of we need to make sure the person who needs the money gets it. Well, they are going to, except for a very, very small minority. So the partner dies within a short time because you've both been in a car crash, the classic example. Um, so... Okay, for an infinitesimally small number of those real-life cases that might happen, it could have been handy to have put it in trust. Um, it does mean that, again, um, the, the delays of probate would be avoided. Um, it does mean that there would be flexibility, assuming you had appointed another trustee, yeah. <laughs> and that's a big if. Yeah, um, but that goes full circle to what we said about 10 minutes ago. That's exactly why you should have another trustee. Well, exactly. If You, you may as well not have bothered um, if you put your joint life policy in trust and don't add somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> um, that would be silly. Is so, this why the Knowles? Is this why the Knowles family never fly on the same flight? It's just the Air Force One <laughs> principle, isn't it? So uh, they, that's, this is why they've both got two separate private jets now, Catherine. That uh, you know. So sorry, Alan, you're going to have to go on your one today. So. No, bless him. No. So I'm, I'm thinking, sort of, <laughs> even even in that, you know, if the worst did happen and both mommy and daddy died that's terribly sad and very awkward um uh, but the children um aren't the mortgage payers that that will that the whole scenario is a, a, a horrible mess for whoever's left to sort out um but they're going to be whisked away to granny and grandpa's or this whoever has been chosen as the guardian um those children um are going to be okay in the meantime well while everything gets sorted out yeah so i don't feel that that is such a pressing scenario for uh, oh we must pu push trusts if it's a joint life policy um the urgent scenario um where the money is needed to be paid out pronto it is where the other parent or partner um, it's got the mortgage to pay. Yeah, <laughs> they correct. definitely need the money fast. And that's exactly what they'll do anyway, because it's written in the contract that you will get the money. And uh, as soon as you turn up, we can pay you. I think it kind of goes back a little bit to what you were saying as well about it for people who aren't married, isn't it? Because that, that's the argument I've heard for the Joint Life Trust, because it's a case of, right, you know, if, as you say, the car crashes is a classic example. So the couple have died. They're then going to figure out as to which one died first, in a sense. And I yes. think it's usually they assume that all the persons died first, I think, in general. They have a, they have a five-minute rule, don't they, that says the older person died five minutes before the younger person. Ah, right. I wasn't sure if it was a five-minute rule. I wonder what you were yeah. going on with the five-minute rule. That's what I was yeah, thinking. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, so, so it's generally the other person. So then, again, we could be in that situation, like we were saying before, where it's then going to go to that person's family rather than it maybe going jointly across where we'd want it to go to um yes. I've, I've always found it quite strange actually the idea of the joint life in trust you know it's, it's one of those things that you know it kind of feels like it, it it has its place but at the same point usually it would be a case of if there's a couple it would be a case of well I want you to be my trustee and my beneficiary at the same you know at the same time so it's um it is a very strange situation yeah. um so, but again, given that, well, I don't know if it's still the case, but it used to be a truism that 80% of people take out life cover because they're getting a mortgage. Yeah. Uh, so assuming in this scenario then that they have got a mortgage, most likely, then the the same rule presumably would happen, um, apply with the mortgage debt as well. Um, 
So the, if the debt's passing in the, according to the hits the state the estate of the youngest as well as the, the money, mm. then actually that's a symmetry that's that's worked out okay. Okay, no, that's fine. I think um, we'd uh, be really remiss to not go and start talking about payout planner very very soon. Something that you are clearly have been absolutely instrumental in and in getting this set up. Um, can you explain um, payout planner to everybody, please? Well, Payout Planner is the brilliant marketing name that uh, Guardian came up with um, to say exactly what it does. Um, for my thing, which more generically I would call contractual beneficiary nomination, which is not as snappy, <laughs> but also tries to, to say what it is. In other words, in your policy, you simply say who who is to be paid. That's your planning, planning who gets paid if you die. So um, even if the claim started off as terminal illness, um, if it hasn't been resolved um, before the insurance can pay out and the insurer gets told after your death, who gets the money? Well, under payout planner uh, or with Royal London now, they've got beneficiary nomination the insurer after your death has got somebody you've already told them mm -hmm. um, is to get the money. Uh, simple as that. So for your most straightforward of cases, if it's your partner, then they, um, they've they got a, a simple uh, path to getting the money as if it had been joint life. Yeah. In fact, uh, it would be a very similar process. Um, yeah, so that's it. It's really easy to do online. I know from using it myself, it's easy to do online. What would you say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, something easy online. <laughs> um, and that needs to be, I know I was looking through some materials recently, so it must be done at the start of the policy, mustn't it? It's the, the, on the payout planner. So as with the trust, we can, in a sense, follow up and do it afterwards. With the payout planner, it's at the start. Yeah, so, and it, technically, you could design a policy that allows it to come along later, um, but I have encouraged any insurers starting off with it, at least for now, to bake it into the application process, For because apart from anything else, it's not that difficult to include in the application process. It's, it's still easier than doing a joint life policy because you don't have the second lot of medical questions to do. Uh, and somehow the industry is coping with that. Um, so get it done while you're thinking about it, because goodness knows that um, anything that gets left till afterwards tends not to get done. Uh, and the whole point is to get as many cases set up right from day one as possible and not only that when you've got free cover um you don't want to be in a situation like i actually saw real live cases being mentioned on linkedin um the advisor had said oh well we'll we'll wait till the cover's in force and then we'll put the um the trust in place whoops unfortunately the applicant one of them died before um the policy had gone in force never mind the trust um, and there was free cover, but unfortunately they weren't married. So the free cover was available, but not to the partner. Um, and that's another reason why I'm so keen that actually for new policies, um, bake it into the application process that you're, you're 100% um, covered no matter what. Yeah, I think it's quite natural as well as an advisor. So like obviously as an advisor, we have fact finds and we're always kind of tweaking and changing fact finds, especially in the protection space, because there's so many questions that we need to go through in terms of health and different things. And I know one of the most recent sort of like changes that that we had done was, you know, specifically on the trust side of things. So, you know, it's kind of like a thing of like when we're going through all the standard stuff, right? What's your name? What's your date of birth? What's your smoke status? Do you have a will? You know, do you have your own property? Are you renting? Right, we'll talk about life insurance. Who do you want this to pay for? So it's it's right before we even really get into the the real core bits of it. You know, even you know, way before like we're doing the applications with the insurance, it's going right and straight away, sort of like, right, who is it going to be paying for? Because this is the whole reason you're here. So there's somebody 
And um, what we've been doing as well is trying to build up like um, a spreadsheet, actually, of what we need from each insurer, because with some insurers, you need the person's name, date of birth and address. Some of them, it's just the name and date of birth and, and all this kind of stuff. But just to try and really, at the very least, say to people from the start, right, life insurance, who is it going towards? Because if they don't know who, then we're coming into the whole advice thing of insurable interest and what's actually going on here. What's the conversation about? Um, so saying, right, what's their name? What's the date of birth? Because I'm going to be doing a legal document to help. Um, so, I mean, just very, I know I've just gone off on that a little bit, but just very quickly back to the payout planner. So I know you've mentioned the definite why London do it. Guardian offer it as well. Um, what would you say about following up with the trust as well? Do you feel that, you know, a trust should be used as well as the payout planner? Or I'm just thinking, because some advisors might think I've done payout planner, that's all done and dusted. There we go then. But what's the value in still putting a trust in place as well? Um, I wish you wouldn't. <laughs> Please stop it. So, yes, you can put a trust in place, but then that eliminates the um, beneficiary nomination. Okay. So the only reason that um, I designed it so that you could follow up with a trust later was in recognition that life changes and things get more complicated. And you might find 10 years later that, oh, actually, um, my partner's left me with my disabled child. Um, so that's awkward. I don't want to nominate that so-and-so anymore. Mm. Um, and what's more, it's going to be awkward just nominating my child. I wish I'd done a trust now. So, well, in that, that's just one example of why you might need to do something different for very specific reason. Um, so why is it that you need the trust? If if you haven't got a specific reason why you would have done a trust all along, then just stick with the beneficiary nomination if all you want to do is say it's to pay my partner. Um, it, if you then follow up with a trust on top of that, well, you've just um, deleted the beneficiary nomination and you've then re-entered what I now consider the hell of complexity <laughs> um, of a trust where depending on which uh, insurer it is um, you may or may not have given away the terminal illness benefit yeah. you might regret that <laughs> when the time comes um, to be on your death uh, bed and could have done with yeah. uh, a real hand on the financial side um, you, again as I've mentioned before some of the in, insurance trusts um, uh, I've been discovering when I've been talking to some claims departments uh, who've actually had some practical problems um, the awkwardness of oh now we've got to get a deed to appoint another um, trustee before they can pick the beneficiary uh, oh but we already had that sorted right at the start when you did beneficiary nomination so you don't want to um, set those uh, hoops up to jump later unless you've got a specific reason uh, of which the you know there could be quite a list um, but in practice it shouldn't happen very often is is what my expectation would be. Okay. So I think, um, sorry, as we're coming towards the end, uh, a good thing to sort of like focus on is just this whole consumer duty thing that we're all, all very aware of at the moment. And we all know that it means that at the very least protection insurance does need to start giving a greater weighting overall in financial advice. Um, I'm sure, you know, while obviously love to, to say the word signposting, um, make sure we get that in there to say, you know, if, if you don't do protection, make sure that you are at least getting someone to step in and help provide some support there. Um, and I think the whole thing about the amount of policies that are written into trust is going to be quite a key probably a key factor going forward because I mean I, I know overall the amount of policies with trust is, is quite low really in our industry and we need to really be doing more and as, as we've said you know for myself you know even though I do do this you know it can be complicated when you're going from insurer to insurer to figure out exactly which one is going to work for you know very different situations a lot of the time it can be quite straightforward but there are definite complicated ones we then have the fact that with some of them we can do them online at the point of application and I would say from an advice point of view 
I, I for me, if, if you can do it online, obviously the beneficiary nomination, absolutely do that online. Um, but even if you can do the full trust online, you know, there are many situations where, in a sense, you shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, in a set, you know, it should kind of like be, for me, it's a bit automatic. It's an online trust, so we're going to be doing it. Um, but then some of them we need to have the wet signatures still, which is very, very frustrating. And, and once you're starting to do stuff like that, the likelihood of it actually going into trust is really quite low because people are just going to yeah. get bored and fed up with it. Yeah, especially those that still require witnesses. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, from your point of view, what do you think we can do as an industry to kind of improve trust take up? And I appreciate that that's work from insurers and advisors alike. Well, you won't be surprised to hear me say um, I would love it if we don't improve trust take up because we've got 90% of the market doing beneficiary nomination. (laughs) That would be (laughs) point number one. Um, But in the meantime, um, yeah, to improve trust take up, there, there are a number of things. We've already discussed some of them, which is tackling the motivation uh, both of the advisor community and the actual customers themselves by putting the emphasis on what is what is the real reason this really matters <laughs> would be step one, which is focus on who needs the money. Um, but yes, uh, other things that could be done to improve uh, trust take up, definitely the uh, the online approach, and now that uh, I must give kudos to LNG for spotting it <laughs> and felt a bit daft that nobody else, including myself, had spotted it all this time, that you can actually write um, a trust even for existing policies that doesn't need witnesses um, as long as you don't call it a deed. You just don't have to call it a deed. All right. Okay. So, uh, if everybody did that and got rid of witnesses, that would um, remove uh, a whole level of um, merry-go-round that would, uh, gets in the way of getting trusts done. Um, I, I, but I, so I suppose those would be the key things, really. Um, the other thing that I have got um, as a potential solution uh, in the works Um, which I'm not promising will come to fruition, but uh, I am in discussions again uh, with with some advisors um, about the possibility of of, uh, bringing into being another of my um, grand ideas, which I'm calling the Easy Payout Trust, uh, and they've been calling the Universal trust (laughs) either way a brilliant thing about it is it would be the same trust that could be used for all straight straightforward cases that simply need a flexible split trust that could be used for any insurer so um yeah heavenly well that that really is really is utopia (laughs) I mean, I'll, I'll just going back to consumer duty piece, though, Ruth, do you think, uh, you know, let's face it, that what that means is, come on, everyone needs to start getting a bit more responsible. Is that uh, hopefully a wake up call to a lot of the direct consumer market to stop bypassing? Uh, you know, they're not all doing it, but stop bypassing the, the whole trust issue. And that actually consumer duty should be telling all parts of our industry to mention trusts. Yes. So in the consumer duty um, guidance, um, I couldn't bring myself to read the actual rules, but the guidance will do me because that's what the FOS has um, said, what they're thinking. Um, It actually says in there, if you find an outcome um, that is poor (laughs) and not delivering fair value, well, 100% loss of the proceeds would be definitely not fair value. You might even have been paying for it out of your joint bank account. Um, so that's a clear case of that is not fair value and it's a poor customer outcome. Another way they put it is frustrating the um, the purpose of the consumer. Okay, I think that's a, a fair cop. So the guidance actually says, well, um, yeah, try and fix it, obviously. 
But if you can't fix it, then you've got to turn off the tap. So stop selling that business. Um, that that's ultimately the end game is um, if if you are selling cover to unmarried couples who you know will not be able to get the money, stop it. <laughs> yeah, become much more forceful in terms of saying no. This needs to be in trust in a sense. You know, it's uh, it's making sure that we do everything right for the clients. Yes. And another and another argument for advice, Catherine. Oh, absolutely. And more that, uh, beneficiary nomination forms with insurance. Was that, was, was that, are we being subtle enough? <laughs> <laughs> Small message going out to part of our industry. But anyway, let's let's get on. Well, let's face it. People who go down a direct route or potentially not advised, you know, they, they might not be hearing about this stuff. So as you say, you know, it's... It, but surely they're all experts on trust already, aren't they? Oh, <laughs> uh, behave. Oh, behave. <laughs> Right, well, we're at the end of the podcast now, so Ruth, thank you so much uh, for, for coming on. And I'm very pleased to say that your cat and my fudge have behaved themselves. So that's really, really good. Um, and thank you, Roy, obviously, for being back as well. Uh, next time, we're going to be back with Matt Ran, and we're going to be talking through um, insurance for high net worth individuals. So when we start getting into the really high value policies and how that can change underwriting outcomes and very much cases where we would uh, really, really be wanting trusts in place. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work, you can claim a CP start that one again, CPD certificate on the website too. Thanks to our sponsors, the Oxford members. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Roy. Thank you, you soon. Thank you.